This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. Shall I tell you what I find beautiful about you? You are in charge of every best when things are worse. Sooner or later, though, you always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas. And I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, Veritas member, for making this program possible. Please subscribe at VeritasRadio.com to listen to both segments of tonight's interview and all of our material. Tonight's special guest is a veteran of this program. By popular demand, Dr. Brooks Agnew is back to discuss proposed solutions to restore America, give the states their sovereignty back, and remove the barriers from the people so that we can rise again as the model of the country the Founding Fathers intended for all of us. Dr. Brooks Agnew will be with us shortly. And visit the Veritas store for MMFs, our futuristic metal case USB drives with all of our seasons and bonus material, and a lot more. Visit the Veritas store for more information. And to get in touch with me, very simple. Go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the contact button. From the words of Dr. Brooks Agnew, 80 years ago, America the Beautiful was led down a dark alley by an agency government that has consumed everything and produces nothing. Finally, she has decided this abuse must come to an end. We already fought our bloodiest war over this once. We know what to do this time. Forty states have already passed some form of sovereign act, more than enough to ratify any repeal or pass new amendments. It is time we give the president's ministers their pink slips and set the people free. We are one nation under surveillance and we are ready to recover our liberty right now. You'll learn what is being done about it and where you can help. There is some major house cleaning to do. Grab a broom. This might take some work. It cannot happen without you. We can't step back from the precipice or we can run over the edge. You have already made part of the choice by listening to tonight's program. For this and much more, Dr. Brooks Agnew is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas.
This is Jim Trafficking right here on Veritas. Beam me up on Veritas, Mal. Always willing to talk. Dr. Brooks Agnew was one of the most successful scientists with ground probing radar technology in the nation for oil and gas exploration. Similar technology is currently utilized in the Mars Express program. He is the author of thousands of technical papers, seminars, documentaries, and books on precision measurement and exploration into the mysteries of the universe and of the Earth. He is the host of X Squared Radio, and you can listen to his excellent radio show by visiting x2-radio.com. And he also has written a number of books, and the latest one is titled Alienated Nation, The New Quest for Liberty. And from somewhere in the United States, I would like to welcome Dr. Brooks Agnew back to Veritas. Hello, Brooks, and welcome back. How are you? Thank you, Mel. Wow, I love being on your program. Oh, we love to have you on, Brooks. Uh, you're very welcome. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Brooks. I had to tell you, when you listen to Brooks, this is exactly what you get. And I tell you this because I've met, I've had the privilege of spending time with Brooks in, in person at the East City Ranch. And, and for being such an intellectual, Brooks, you are very approachable and down to earth. And you can speak about so many different topics, all the way from the paranormal to what is happening with our government. Let's start with something. Why would a scientist and commercial engineer be writing a book about America, Alienated Nation? Well, that's a, that's a really good question. I have an occasion to go to Washington quite a bit, not only uh, for grant applications, but also, you know, to make the case for the electric car business in Washington and try to give small business some some kind of support from our government. And um, over the years, I have met a lot of politicians, uh, elected officials, I'm going to call them, and uh, and all in all, most of them I have found to be, you know, very genuine, very willing to help, very willing to work hard and set up meetings and, and uh, do their best to, to get us an opportunity to be represented in our government. It is when I run into the bureaucracies, what we call the agencies, departments, bureaus, and administrations of our government. What I discovered, Mel, is I discovered the shadow government. We no longer have a government. We are being ruled by a loose coalition of bureaucracies. They tax us. They charge us fees. They write rules and regulations and laws. And we have no representation in this government. And now, under this administration, it has become so large, so fast, and so powerful, I don't think we can, I don't think we can get it out of the way. I don't think we can unseat it. How is that not 21st century slavery, Brooks? Well, it, in a way, it's not slavery. It's more like communism, where the state owns everything. The state controls everything. They, can, they control the communication. They control the money. They control all the resources. They control what you can sell and where you can sell it and what you can charge for it. And uh, this is not free enterprise. This is not the way America was founded. America was founded on exceptionalism and on entrepreneurialism. And if you work hard and you're smart and you're determined, you can be successful. It isn't that way anymore. And the reason why I use the word slavery, Brooks, because as a business owner, I was looking at my payroll the other day and I was looking at all the amount of bureaucracy I have to get involved with every month, every quarter. Workers' compensation, social security, sales taxes, you, you name it. The amount of taxes is unbelievable. For anybody who wants to create their own business, the entrepreneurial feeling that most people in America have, sometimes they think twice before they're getting buried about all these bureaucracies. Brooks? Well, yeah, well, more than twice. I mean, you would think uh, presenting uh, an emission-free vehicle, an electric vehicle to the American highway, that you would get support from at least some of the bureaucracies in our government and that you wouldn't be opposed by the ones that are opposing us. Let me give you an example. Uh, the EPA is about 80% responsible for not allowing electric vehicles on America's highway. You'd think the Environmental Protection Agency, instead of being the Environmental Protectionist Agency, would be supportive 
of getting our kind of vehicle on the road. They're not. Their primary job is to protect the major car makers from competition. And you're only citing one example, and I'm glad you mentioned the electric car, but you have the FDA that instead of protecting, and the EPA, instead of protecting the people's well-being and the EPA, the environment, they seem to be protecting those entities that are not doing the same. But you mentioned the electric car, and I find it very hard to believe that our own government does not want the electric car to come out. And you mentioned in your book two things, Betamax and the VHS. It seems now that we're coming to a point, design-wise, where everything looks the same. The propaganda, for example, Audi and Toyota, you look at, you look at them from far away, and you don't seem to see a, 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 a difference between the cars. It's almost as if everybody's making the same thing because that's what people want. And if you deviate, people don't buy it. Is that true? No, that isn't true. In fact, people like variety. They like things to look different. They like them to perform differently. What has happened is we have gone to uh, such a lack of innovation in our car companies. Our engines, we think it's really great if a car gets 30 miles per gallon. But when I was in the automotive industry, we had vehicles that would get 90 miles per gallon, even 99 miles per gallon. But you'll never see it on the highway. People would buy that car. People would definitely buy that car, but they're never going to make it. This is why companies are bringing back the, you know, for example, PT Cruiser, the Mustang, Challenger, the, 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 the VW Bug. They're going back to what was nostalgic at one time? Well, yes and no. They're going back to what, see, the automotive industry, for all their their technology and all of the smart people that are in this industry, and I've been in it my whole life, and I'm amazed by this. There's a very simple formula to make a hit car. You have to create a value for the niche that you're selling in. And a few times, randomly, car makers have got this right with like the Mustang or with the Angley, which was actually made by Ford. But the P2 Cruiser is a, is a Dodge or a Chrysler a copy of the old Ford Anglia. That's why it sort of strikes something in people, and they, they want to go ahead and buy it. Uh, also, the uh, Chrysler M300 looks, sort of looks like the old uh, gangster kind of cars. Yeah, true. You know, this, is, this, this is why people uh, nab onto them. But you'll notice that there's very little futuristic designs in cars even though sometimes they're easier to manufacture. Uh, I think that innovation in automotive design has all but disappeared. Every car company is in nothing but profit-taking mode now. They just want to make enough vehicles, get them out there, get them sold, make, make as much money as possible. And the buyer has no choice. And I can promise you this, Mel, if they were given a choice, they would buy it. And you're so right about futuristic cars, we don't see them. I mean, I remember in the early 80s, the uh, uh, DeLorean, for example, was, you know, one company out of the blue. And, you know, you don't need that many sophisticated lines to build a, a futuristic uh, car when it comes to just the aesthetics. But going back to the federal government, I'd love to have you on, Brooks, because you can discuss E.T., and you can discuss the government, which is not that freaking that I get to talk to somebody who can walk all the ways. But wasn't the whole purpose of the federal government to protect us from enemies, foreign and domestic? How was it or how is it turning into this giant Wars R Us Hydra? You know, that's a, I love that question. When the founding fathers originally uh, decided to declare independence from Britain, Obviously, we were just 13 colonies and some territories. We had our own resources. We had our own way. We had our own spirit. And actually, it was taxation by Britain, a 4% tax on tea that made Americans so mad. Why? Because we didn't have any representation in Britain. They could assign a tax, and we had to pay it. Well, it wasn't so much the tax. It was the principle of the thing, and they knew knowing Britain, because uh, they hadn't been gone from there that long, that this was a slippery slope, that if Britain was allowed to get away with this tax, 
There would be a 5% tax on, on wool, or there'd be another tax on finished goods, and then it would, would, they would just be nothing more but a revenue engine for, for Britain. This is why Declaration of Independence was declared. Well, once it was declared, now we had to form a constitution. We had to have a form of government. We had to have a structure by which 13 colonies, which were then going to become states, could work together under a central government without it getting too much in the way. That's why these checks and balances were put in place. To keep the federal government doing what the federal government is supposed to do and let the states do the rest. And that went fine until 1932. In 1932, actually it was sort of crafted under Hoover, but Hoover was never allowed to enact it because he was a Republican. As soon as Roosevelt, the famous governor of New York, became president, all of Hoover's ideas were implemented almost overnight. We had 30 new agencies. We had the CCC. We had the FDIC, we had uh, the IRS, all of these organizations fell into place as though their Bibles were already written. And we started down an 80-year pathway of the federal government becoming the ruler of the nation. The states became secondary, and that's not what the Founding Fathers had in mind. And one thing that a lot of people in America don't know, Brooks, is that also Roosevelt declare bankruptcy. What is it, June 5th, 1933? I wasn't aware of personal bankruptcy. I wasn't aware of that. No, no. The United States. As he, oh, yes, that's right. Yes. That's right. And, and yes. Ever, ever, ever since, our property has been deemed collateral. Every property that we own is collateral for that. And unfortunately, now most of that money is borrowed. Guess who the title holder is? China. Now, isn't that a little bit hypocritical, Brooks, that the largest communist country in the world is lending money to the biggest capitalist country in the world? Well, this is the real tragedy, Mel. You have a country who has maintained very carefully third world status. That is to say, their people can live on a few thousand dollars a year, maybe two thousand dollars a year. Their people are, and I don't want to be derogatory in any way toward Asians or, or the Chinese people as a people, but the government has determined that its people are expendable, and they can just use them up and throw them away and replace them with more people, and that's what's happening in factories in China right now. But the, the main thing that China has done is they have artificially set the value of China's money at a, at a very low value. What this allows is other currencies like the pound and the euro and the dollar to do business in China very cheaply. And so what that has done is it's attracted all of the primary assembly and sub-assembly labor to China. And that's why we don't build circuit chips. We don't build uh, integrated circuit chips in this country anymore. They used to be built in Silicon Valley. That's where they started. Now they're all built in China textiles, furniture, now automotive, everything's being built in China. Even the Harley Davidson is made in China. The the <laughs> you thought of Harley Davidson, you thought American made. How are we going to ever? And so many people say we need to bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States. That that to me seems like an impossible plight. Well, it is and it isn't. It's it's it seems to be impossible because you can't get these mega multi-billion dollar multinational corporations to move back to the United States. They're in China, they're in India, they're in Vietnam, they're in Pakistan. That's where they're going to stay because they're, they're now nat international companies. But American manufacturing, manufacturing that originates here, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of American entrepreneurs that would walk through ground glass barefooted to get their business started. They are determined. They have great ideas. They have great determination. But they have no access to capital. Nothing is available to them. If that were to be made available to them, we would have an, a new industrial revolution in this country, and we would outstrip every country in the world, again, in innovation and manufacturing.
I just thought of one solution. We, we, we deal with Vietnam and we lost, what was it, 56,000 of our soldiers there. And they're, uh, they have a preferred status as a country with us business-wise. And then we have Cuba, who has never done anything to us. And, and you know, I'm a product of that. My parents left Cuba after the missile crisis. But I just thought uh, the biggest expense between China and the United States, it's the shipping. Shipping and the time it takes for goods to be, uh, you know, taken to the United States. If we were able to, to have our manufacturing, if we need cheap labor, go to Ch Cuba, 90 miles away. You have a bunch of people who are equipped to do the work. But that's another story. Another thing is, have you heard of these supposedly sovereign business areas in the United States that are allowing China to move their 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 manufacturing here with their own workers? Have you heard that? Uh, yes, I have. In fact, I helped launch the Nissan Altima, and we had what's called a foreign trade zone in Smyrna, Tennessee. Everything that went on behind that fence was in Japan. Nobody could come inside that fence. No government agency could come inside that fence, not without clearances. Almost like an so, embassy. Yeah, exactly. And it's been that way in this country for a long, long time, perhaps 30 years. We have had foreign trade zones where foreign countries have actually operated with impunity inside our own country, bringing their own foreign nationals here to work. And I have a couple of quotes from your book, and this one I love by Thomas Jefferson. A government big enough to supply everything you need is big enough to take everything you have. The course of history shows that as a government grows, liberty decreases. This is exactly what's happening now. But in your book also, you say, America will never deploy the U.S. military to fight a domestic enemy. Americans would never allow it. We would not vote such a thing into action. There are also more guns in America than there are people. And this is precisely and specifically protected under Article 2 of the Constitution. Of course, there is no mention of ammunition. How are you so certain about this book? And I'm glad you mentioned ammunition. Did you see the purchase orders by DHS and, and the Weather Service, uh, specifically NOAA, and, and even the Social Security Administration buying hollow point bullets? How are you so certain? And why the purchase of so much ammo? Well, I have always maintained that the Second Amendment is, is like the third rail uh, of like an electric uh, train in this country. People are never going to let the government overthrow the Second Amendment. I don't care how many uh, Aurora shootings there are in movie theaters or what. People are never going to give up their guns. In fact, they're going to buy more guns. But that article doesn't say anything about ammunition. And that's what I mentioned in my book. There is, a, there is a process to doing this. The first is that the government itself has to outlaw certain types of ammunition. In other words, it's okay for the government to buy this type of ammunition, but it's not okay for a civilian to buy this type of ammunition. And that is already in place. You cannot buy armor-piercing bullets anymore. You can't buy exploding rounds. You, uh, you can buy a fully automatic machine gun if you have a Type 3 federal firearms license, but then they're going to watch you like a hawk anyway. But uh, that being said, they can go after the ammunition. They can uh, take certain types of ammunition first, which creates the foundation for their the alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and now explosives regulations that they write that have the force of law. And all they really have to do is say, look, we're losing law enforcement people out there because of hollow point ammunition. And so we're going to outlaw hollow point ammunition. But these fairly innocuous government agencies have some leftover money. And so they're being asked by somebody in the government to spend that money on hollow point ammunition, which, by the way, has been outlawed since 1899 for use in armed conflict because it violates the Geneva Convention. Hold but on, Brooks. Government Hold on. I, you know, I'm so glad you said that because that's exactly the reason why I asked you this question. Because I thought, you know, September the 30th, the end of the fiscal year is coming. They probably have some overages or surplus in their budgets. So somebody's telling them to buy all these, all these uh, the, the ammo. That's right. And not just a little bit of ammo. We're talking about one and a half billion rounds of hollow point 40 caliber ammunition. That's the kind used in pistols, by the way, not rifles. We're talking about Glock ammunition. That's enough rounds to put five hollow point 40 caliber rounds in the body 
of every single man, woman, and child in America. Now, why do you think this is happening? I mean, the, the, the logistics of probably buying it before the, the fiscal year ends, could this also be another, perhaps, and I don't mean to get parapolitical, parapolitical here or conspiratorial, another Iran-Contra scenario where we're passing all these bullets to, say, insurgents in the Middle East? Well, let me give you perhaps four different answers beside that one. Um, maybe they're planning for an armed insurrection of Americans trying to overthrow our own government. So they're going to arm weathermen? They're going to arm weathermen? I don't get that. They're going to arm IRS agents? Uh, and certainly the Department of Homeland Security is at the root of all this. Social Security, that too. Yeah, Social Security, right. Like, I'm sure seniors are going to go to Washington and demand their checks when the checks stop flowing. All you have to do is watch the news in Greece or Spain or Italy or any of the other places where government checks have been flowing for 25 years and all of a sudden they stop. So the other thing is that, uh, you know, many, many millions of enthusiasts out there reload their own ammunition. Reloading equipment is very shortly going to be called either ammunition manufacturing paraphernalia or it's going to be called terrorist activity because you are now making a weapon without a license. This is exactly where we're going. And, and you mentioned in your book also the Patriot Act, among, among many other laws. I sound like a broken record, folks, when I say the following. But since you covered this in your book, I want to go over it. Hitler had his Reichstag fire. We had 9-11. Hitler passed the Enabling Act. We passed the Patriot Act. Hitler had fatherland security. We have the homeland security. Hitler socialized medicine, and we are too. Oh, and now we have the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. Do you see the Nazi script continuing here? Yeah, I do, and not so much with the Patriot Act. You know, that was kind of a knee-jerk reaction. Mostly the Patriot Act is around getting all the states and all of the law enforcement agencies from the local sheriff down at Andy of Mayberry all the way to the FBI to be able to move data back and forth between one another so they could follow bad guys from state to state. It also allows them to do a better job of surveillance so that we can detect things before they happen instead of after they happen. That part, at least the spirit of that is okay. But when you read the regulations, and keep in mind, these are not laws written by congressmen. These are regulations written by professional bureaucrats. They put in this loosey-goosey phrase that's called, as the secretary shall determine. Who's the secretary? A presidential appointee. And the presidential appointee normally, according to the Constitution, is supposed to be put in only after senatorial advice and consent. But this administration has already demonstrated twice that they are willing and able and, and intent on putting in who they want, when they want, whether Senate is in session or not. A total violation of the Constitution, and nothing is being done about it. Now, the more violent, the more terrible level of this, the more Hitlerian level of this is the NDAA. Now you're talking about federal troops, not your local cops, not your local sheriffs, federal troops being sent in to arrest with no Miranda rights, no habeas corpus. They just scoop you up off the streets, shackle you, and off to Guantanamo Bay you go forever. No due process, no speedy trial, no charges will be filed. That's why the end, by the way, it was our president himself that had that clause put in there. And for those who think that, no, he's never going to be able to, this is never going to happen. All you have to do, look at the, the Marine, Brandon Raub, who's, uh, well, actually today he was released by a judge. A judge ordered his release because he couldn't find any allegation to his imprisonment. Uh, you know, free speech, Brooks, is this the first casualty of the NDAA? And actually I found today from the mother of this Marine that she has spoken to other mothers of, of, of military personnel and more are being detained. So this is happening. Well, it's not just military folks. You also have reporters, people that discover something, vet it, make sure that it's authentic, 
and then release it to the public because that's their job. That's what they do. They look over our shoulder. That's how we maintain our liberty, folks. And the guy that we named on X Squared Radio for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2011 is still being held in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, and he can't step foot out of there. He's a prisoner. They're going to catch Julian Assange, and they're going to shoot him. They're going to kill him because he's a reporter, and he reported on the murder of 89,000 people through illegal activities of this country and other countries. So they're not going to prosecute the people that committed the murders or the people that covered them up or the people that killed the people that were covering it up. No, they're going to kill the messenger. And I also heard today that they also have somebody that was given asylum. I forgot the name of the woman in the uh, Ecuadorian embassy in 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 the UK, in the uh, London, and she was the one who uncovered the weapons of mass destruction fiasco. So I wonder also if they're using Julian Assange as the one that is more known, and if they storm into that embassy, the real reason is to take out this woman. Wow, that very well could be. And and you're exactly right. You know, Julian Assange is just a spokesperson for who? For an organization that's called Anonymous. They don't have a leader. They're totally decentralized. Some of the most talented IT, internet technology people in the world belong to this organization. And they are determined to make sure that the dirty laundry is hung out on the line for the world to see. So that these people that are doing these nefarious acts know, eventually, we're going to find out and we're going to tell the world and the spotlight is going to be on you. Why else would America want Julian Assange uh, extradited to Sweden to stand trial for some stupid encounter with two prostitutes? Because Sweden has an extradition policy with the U.S. and England does not. Exactly, exactly. And this whole NDAA is making a lot of people concerned. There are some members of the media, some of my colleagues who are in solidarity f for what happened to this Marine. They're planning to probably close their Facebook accounts. And speaking of Facebook, Google, which owns YouTube as well, do you think these entities, these data mining entities, which that's what they are, do you think they are part of that group that's monitoring every citizen in the world? I don't think they started out that way, Mel, but I think they're growing that way uh, right now, and it's a terrible thing to watch. Uh, by the way, you asked me why it is that uh, American manufacturing can't get going and yes. what I would do to, to fix it. This kind of ties into it, and I'll explain that in a lot more detail here in a little bit. But right now, the naked short traders are killing Facebook. Uh, these, are, these are companies that sell stock that they don't have. They didn't borrow it. They don't own it. But they're a big uh, broker or they're a big market maker, and uh, they'll put millions of shares of stock on the market at whatever the day's price is, and they collect the money, and the people that bought the shares think they own the stock. But now the job is to make the price of that stock go down, because if it goes up, then the market maker or broker has to deliver that stock, which they got to go buy it, which means the price would go through the roof. But what they do is they release bad press, they force the stock down day after day, week after week, until it falls 50%, 75%, and eventually people lose their faith in it and they sell off the stock and it goes to a tenth of a penny and delists. Guess what they get to do? Keep all the money tax-free because they never actually owned anything. That's and right. That's, what, it, it, that's what's happening. And those short sellers, uh, just beware. If that stock goes up, you'll lose your shirt. But, you know, we know where it's going. But uh, not to get too, too political here, but when I hear Congressman Ron Paul advocating for the elimination of, of fiat money and the Federal Reserve and, and disengaging from foreign entanglements in Iraq and Afghanistan and upholding states' rights, I say to myself, Brooks, what is there not to like about that? Instead, the majority of the population does not get it. it it's the propaganda machine so powerful that it perpetuates the, the, as you call it, the Pavlovian reaction by the masses of more of the same? Yeah, there's no question about it. People, people don't get it. They don't understand. And the, uh, the propaganda machines are so effective at, uh, at keeping this 
uh, out of the understanding of the people because it is quite complicated to understand. And I'll try to make it understandable here. Um, basically, what we're talking about fiat money is exactly what I just talked about with the naked short traders. Fiat money means that the Fed, which now unconstitutionally prints money on behalf of the United States. By the way, that right is given solely in the Constitution to mint money to Congress. Congress abdicated that right to the Fed, and now the Fed controls the money supply. They do that by just putting zeros behind the number in the checking account. They just simply print money to pay our bills. And that's why we continue to see the dollar, or we continue to see gold, go up and up and up and up relative to the dollar. Now, what they do is they sell you the idea that look at the increase in value of gold. What you really should understand clearly, once and for all, is gold doesn't change value. Gold is the same today as it did in 1850. It's the dollar that changed value. Exactly. And I don't want to, to, to miss the part about the tariffs and, and, and one of the reasons why this is happening are the, the, the trade deficit that we have we are allowing it and this is why china can continue producing the goods so cheaply giving them the advantage I, you wanted to talk about this but just a quick a quick uh, parenthesis here you probably heard of the movie red dawn remember from 1984 sure the new one was supposed to to uh to uh come back 2010 but this is Folks, how China is so powerful. They came to our own government, to our military, and said, because right now in the new movie, the new installment, China is, was supposed to be portrayed as the invading force. But they, went, they came to us and said, uh-uh, you're not going to do that. And the producers had to take over a year or two to redo the movie, to change with CGI from China to North Korea. What's your take on that? Wow, that really blows my mind. I mean, there's something to be said to that, that China has given this image to the world that it is us, it is Russia, it is North Korea. They've been the aggressors. They've been the war causers for the last century. China has defended itself against Japan. China hasn't really invaded a country in 75 years. Right. China, China is the company that wants peace, that wants trade, that wants what they call technology exchange. It's we that want war. So to portray China invading the U.S. is so counter to their culture. That, and by the way, they also own most of Hollywood. Uh, they were able to stop this movie and have it changed to North Korea, which is completely inconsequential to the political mind of America. That's right. That's right. But tell us, you, you had a, a, a piece of advice for, the, for those in the manufacturing base who would love to see it come back to the United States. What was your solution? Okay, there's, there are two solutions. And I actually told these solutions to uh, Senator Richard Burr, uh, Senator Kay Hagan, Congressman Larry Kissel, and Congresswoman uh, uh, Elmers out of North Carolina. This is the solution. It's only twofold, and it doesn't cost the taxpayers one penny. The first is that you must do away with capital gains tax for investors who will put money into emerging technologies with companies less than $100 million market cap. No more investment in billion-dollar multinational corporations. That's never going to happen again, not under this uh, rule. What that does, it allows the two trillion dollars that's sitting on the walls around our country to get off the walls and into the dance. It allows them to start investing in small business under $100 million as a small business in this country and, uh, and get them the capital that they need to get started again. Now, the second is just as important as the first, and without it, the first will not work. And that is We must enforce the law, as it's enforced in other countries, but it's not enforced in this country. The last 41 months, not one single case has been prosecuted, and here it is. When a market maker or a broker fails to deliver the stock, that's called naked short trading, they are taken off the exchange the next trading day, and they're not allowed to trade again until they deliver that stock. 
Now, that's the way it is in Germany, in the UK. That's the way it is in Asia, but it's not that way here. And what the American people need to see is that the last week in the news, we saw a over one year investigation against the biggest bank heist in the world history of Goldman Sachs ripping off literally $2 trillion out of the banking system and making the American taxpayer make it up. Not one single person, not a receptionist, not a broker, not an executive, not anyone was prosecuted, nothing. And the second case was the largest single man bank robber in the history of the United States, and that's John Corzine. Corzine. I was just going to say, what about John Corzine? He, his company, MF Global, was 90% margin. That's the maximum allowed by SEC rules. Yeah. When his bets started going south, he didn't make them up any other way except going in and stealing money out of the savings accounts. These aren't even investment accounts. These are the savings accounts of people that banked with him, and none of the accounts had over $10,000 in it. That'll give you an idea. These are small, ordinary investors, small investors. He stole it from thousands upon thousands of them, and they're never going to get their money back, and he got away with what Ann Barnhart is saying about $2 billion. And he sits there in the chair in Congress like the Cheshire cat because he knows that uh, William Holder is never going to bring a case against him. Why? Because William Holder's law firm, the one he came from before he became attorney general, is also John Corzine's law firm. Do we have to thank uh, Bill Clinton for these, for, 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 for this, uh, when he uh, reversed Glass-Steagall, Glass-Steagall Act? Uh, yes, that's, that's primarily it. Now, this is just the tip of the iceberg, Mel. MF Global went down because they were, they were margined to the max. I told you, 90%. Guess what? There are probably 100 companies his size that are margined to 80%. And as soon as the euro destabilizes and cracks, those companies are going to go broke. And that's the bankruptcy of America. That's the collapse of the American dollar right there. Speaking of the dollar, we hear of, of other countries, well, China and, and Russia, determining that they may not be wanting to, to they, they may not want the petrodollar as the foreign reserve currency for buying oil, and perhaps they're going to use a, a gold-backed currency for that. Do you see this happening soon? And if so, how quickly is the American people, are the American people going to feel it? Well, they'll feel it almost immediately because that way, that what will happen is the nations that possess gold will be able to trade in oil. Well, obviously, we don't have any gold anymore. If uh, Ron Paul is correct, uh, <laughs> Fort, Fort Knox is nothing but a big open tennis court on the inside. There is no gold. <laughs> or tungsten. That, right, or tungsten uh, that's been plated with gold. That happened in 1999, that big fiasco. And guess what? The guys at Fort Knox didn't even know. It was... It was forged gold before it even went in there. That's how bad the ripoff was. So that means we cannot buy gold on the open market again, which means we better start drilling our own oil. Or, of course, you can always come to Vision Motor Cars and buy an electric truck, and then you don't need oil. Exactly. And once again, let me go back to 1933 and Roosevelt. Not only the bankruptcy declared, but also the confiscation of gold. During that time, and that's where they needed a facility to store it. That's where we built Fort Knox. Do you see this happening again in the future? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, things of value like that are going to be scooped up. And uh, one of the reasons they haven't done it already, and this is, this is a big one, uh, is because they can't just do gold. They also have to do silver. Now, silver selling for about, uh, I don't know, spot price is about $30 an ounce right now. It yeah. should be. $300 an ounce because of the demand, because of the rarity, because of the purity of it. We use it in electronics. We use it in all kinds of, of filtration equipment. Silver should be $300 an ounce. Why isn't it? It's because J.P. Morgan Stanley has been shorting silver for 20 years. Hmm. And right now, J.P. Morgan Stanley, by the way, you saw J.P. Diamond in Congress a couple of months ago. 
yeah. because they called him in there because he lost $2 billion of his depositors' money. So he came in, and I have to say, Mel, he was brilliant. He showed up in his beautiful suit and his wonderful bright blue eyes, and he, he just dazzled Congress. But he let something slip. <clears throat> they missed it. I caught it. He said, look, this $2 billion is regrettable. We shouldn't have done it. It was a stupid trade. We'll earn it back. We have $2.3 trillion in deposits on hand. So Congress said, wow, that's a lot of money. Sure, the interest on that. Yeah, you'll make it back. No problem. Thank you very much, Mr. Diamond. Nobody asked the question, Mr. Diamond, what are you doing with $2.3 trillion cash on hand? Why isn't that money working in the community? Why isn't that not meeting the credit needs of our business community here in the United States? Because Mr. Diamond would have had to say, well, we can't because we're trading that currency. We're using that money to do micro trades 20 or 30 times a month between various world currencies, the same way George Soros did. And we're using it to manipulate world economies. So, Brooks, this is my God, I'm so glad you said that. This is mainly the reason why they are not lending to the small business. They are not lending to the people because they're making more money by doing these risky investments. They're not really making more money because they would make they'd make 20 times their money if they loaned it to American business because we have done it and we will do it again. We can make tremendous amounts of money in manufacturing in this country. They'd make more money putting in manufacturing, but they wouldn't have the world power that they have. Those banks are using their money because they're part of an even bigger conglomerate that's trying to manipulate world power. Now, I haven't figured that one out yet, but I'll bet some of your listeners have. Are you talking about the IMF and the World Bank? Well, the IMF is a small player, and it's kind of interesting to watch how they're used, especially by uh, uh, advisors to Congress. Congress can't really figure it out. I sat down with Dennis Kucinich one day, and although he looks good on TV in person, he's clueless, clueless about what's going on in this financial world. He'll, he'll, he'll uh, argue with uh, Neil Cavuto on the news, but when he faces me face-to-face -face and I start asking him these questions, he shuffles his feet, he looks at the floor, he has no clue. Um, I can tell you that, that the IMF is just a player. They inject money wherever these consultants tell them to inject money to shore up the credit markets in various economies, whether it's Mexico or whether it's Greece. And it's all phony money. There's no real loss there. The only thing they're doing is just pumping billions of dollars to shore up credit markets. We did the same thing right after the Treaty of Versailles with Germany. We pumped cash into Germany to shore up their credit markets so their mining industry and their smelting industry could get going again. We invited their industrialists to come to this country, tour Ford Motor Company, trained them how to do mass production on an assembly line scale. And they went back to Germany and they used the lines of credit and uh, they used their mines and their smelting abilities and their technology and they built World War II. And those same industrialists that got them going, not only did they make a fortune off that, but then they turned around and loaned us the money to fight them. So they made money on both sides of the equation. And these are some of the biggest names and I list them in the book, Alcoa, Ford, you know, these are some of the biggest names in American industry and how soon we forget. Absolutely. And when you think of government, why is it that we don't see more representatives like Ron Paul and the former congressman Alan Grayson, who actually asked the questions that we should be asking the Federal Reserve representatives? Why don't we have more of those? Is it because they know that the power lies with the Fed, Federal Reserve? No, that's not it. They're asking the questions, believe me, especially the freshmen, the ones that have been in there two and three terms. They're furious, and they meet together as freshmen, and they plot, and they plan, and they try to do, but they cannot get through the dynasties that exist in Congress. The reason Ron Paul could do it is because he's being reelected 14 times. He has seniority. He sits on a lot of these committees, and he he's, gets the bully pulpit from time to time. These freshmen don't even get a back row seat in the committees. They're completely squeezed out. In Washington, they're treated like temps. 
So in other words, it's 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 not the the intention that they have. It's the seniority and the tenure what really matters inside. Yes, I think in Congress, which we're talking about 335 members, uh, I would say there are about 25 Congress men and women who control everything. They control all the committees. They control what bills come to the floor. They control. They they trade off who's going to chair the floor and they allow which things to come to the floor and which not. And you don't just pop up on the floor unless you want to show up at 2 o'clock in the morning and read things into the record. But there's no debating going on on those issues because those people control Congress. Now, in the Senate, it's completely corrupt on both sides of the aisle. I'd say 60 to 70 senators need to be thrown out of office. We should be completely changing the Senate, regardless of seniority. Every two years, we should be getting rid of a third of them. Now, you have some solutions in your book about the Senate. Tell us more. Well, the book isn't just a, a bash book on America or on government. There's plenty of books out there like that. My gosh, we know what the Great Destroyer is now. We know what Screwed is. And by the way, my book outsold both of those books for a couple of days. It's because Good. I'm an engineer, and I'm driven to look for solutions. I don't just go out there and bash everybody. First of all, I got to let you know how bad it is, and then I got to show you what the solution is. And the solution is couched in the Constitution itself. It's called a constitutional convention. Now, we've only had one, and it was run by Congress. James Madison pulled it together. He crafted it uh, as the other representatives got to Washington, which some of them took two to three weeks to get there. He already had this structure formed. He already knew what amendments he wanted to make to the Constitution. He already knew what the convention was going to look like, and everybody just kind of followed suit. Oh, yes, there was there was passionate debate in the Federalist Papers and on and on and on, yes. But the bottom line is we've only made 17 amendments to that document since it was written. So it's not an easy process with respect to Congress. The states, however, are also empowered. And the states are the ratifying bodies, by the way. Three-quarters of the states have to ratify any amendment to the Constitution. But in the same clause, three, uh, two-thirds of the states can call a constitutional convention. And as luck would have it, and one of the main reasons why I waited until now to write the book, is that 80% of our states, 40 states, have already passed sovereignty acts. Sovereignty Act is an official state document that says we are sovereign relative to the United States of America, relative to the federal government. We're declaring our sovereignty. Now, it's not the same as secession. It's more of a legal fight than anything else. But the fact that these 40 states have gone through all of the legislative process to come up with that document and sign it means that those 40 governors could get together, they could call a constitutional convention, they could repeal a few amendments, pass a few amendments, and it could be over in a weekend and ratified. And once that's done, now you undo the agency government. Now you recover the republic for we the people, and you do it in a smart, bloodless, organized, and legal way. And so in the book, I mention three amendments that must go. The 16th, uh, the 27th, and I believe it's the 26th, if I remember my numbers correctly. The 16th, everyone knows, is the income tax. Gone. We just repeal it. It's gone. Government can no longer raise money by going after incomes or profits. The next one is it, it does away with the way elect, uh, Congress is elected. And the third one is the way the Senate is elected. Now, we reorganized those last two with two amendments. One says that Congress people shall then be elected for a period of four years, not two years because they're not a part-time Congress anymore. They're a full-time Congress, except that, oh, yeah, I forgot. They have to run for election every two years. So they're in constant campaign mode, and they're constantly dealing with special interest groups to make those campaigns work. Right. So we elect them for four years instead of two, and we limit them to three terms. Twelve years, and you're gone. And we do the same thing with the Senate. Three terms, 18 years, and you're gone. We don't have anybody in in the Senate for 30 years anymore. There's no more 24-year congressmen anymore. Those dynasties can't form. Those governments are formed by public servants, 
not professional politicians. Is it true that when one one congressman serves two years and say they leave, they have a salary for life? Is that true? It's not a salary per se. It's a retirement benefit. For instance, you remember Congressman Weiner, right? The guy that yeah. embarrassed us all on uh, world television. Yeah, he get he his retirement benefits after just two years are worth one million dollars. How many of you would like to take a job, screw it up? get fired, and still have a million dollars to live on. It doesn't make any sense. And why are we allowing it? Because they're making laws for themselves. That's correct. And it's not just the laws. It's the regulations. 600 new regulations a month. We don't have any representation in those. Congress has nothing to do with those. Those are passed on what I call litigious legislation. This is where you use the court system. And you very carefully craft your court cases in a certain sequence and order so that you can build precedence behind one and then the next and the next. And you write your laws accordingly. And believe me, they have the force of law because that's where two-thirds of our budget goes, is into those bureaus, departments, agencies, and, and uh, administrations. Now, since you're speaking of, the, of uh, states, you devote a, a full chapter to sovereignty. The sovereignty of the states. Why are sovereign states, Brooks, behaving like federal districts these days as opposed to sovereign states? Well, the original founding fathers were very, very suspicious of a federal government. Um, the federal government had two powers in England or in, in Great Britain that they did not want them to have in this country. One was a central bank. They did not. Hamilton wanted a central bank. Jefferson said, no, we're not going to have a central bank, and neither did Franklin, and those were, were a saner minds prevailed. Um, basically, what happened was they allowed state banks to form, and some states could operate across state lines, but we didn't have national banks. Now, of course, with the Fed, since 1933, we have national banks. And it's not only that, but it's a global bank. It's the ult ultimate corruption. The second and this is probably even more important, is education. Thomas Jefferson said that the key to maintaining a, an independent and free liberty is to not allow education to be centralized. Of course, in Great Britain, the king authorized all education. Everything had to be taught according to what the king wanted, and that was that. In this country, individual states can make decisions on their own curricula. Of course, you have to pass the state exam in that state, but every state exam is different. What happens when you, when you go to, say, a, a textbook uh, convention is you have all the textbook writers, Simon and Schuster, and all the textbook publishers lay out their history books and their math books and their sociology books. And, and then the state's uh, school board representatives come in, pick two or three books that they really like, take them back to their school board, say, does this fit? Our, uh, our way that we want to teach our kids, they say yes, and they buy that book. The difference is that the Department of Education is trying to force a national curricula. Now, what happens is, and you already know this, states teach the, te uh, teach the test. They just do. They want the students to do well on it. That's what they're going to be graded on, and that's what the schools are going to be graded on. So they teach the test. But there are 50 different tests. But with a federal system, there's only one test. There's only one way of looking at it. And that is a slippery slope to slavery. Not only slavery of knowledge, but you lose independent thought completely. But you see, that's what I kept saying at the beginning of the show of the, the growth of this hydra. In the 70s, we had the, the situation with the oil embargo. And all of a sudden, what do we see? We saw the emergence of the Department of Energy, which supposedly was going to help us perhaps tap into our own reserves and, and do not be so dependent on foreign oil. Well, we're more dependent today. The price of oil continues to go up for us. Then now we have the Department of Homeland Security. Do you see how these, they keep growing and growing and we get less and less? Oh, yes, absolutely. The Department of Energy was actually originally formed to monitor and control not only the national power grid, but specifically the nuclear power grid. They saw it as a national security risk, not just a state risk. 
And so that's what it was originally formed for. And up until just a few years ago, like four years ago, that's where most of the money went. But with this administration, the Department of Energy has become a giant laundry. What they do is they take in taxpayers' money, they shovel it out to billion-dollar multinational corporations who then are tasked to turn around and write checks back to the administration. So they launder taxpayers' money by the millions back to the administration. And if you're not willing to write that check, you are not going to get a grant. That's what it boils down to. Take, for example, your company, the elect your electric car company. Why don't we see more like you coming out with this dependence, dependency on foreign oil? Why don't we see more Brooks Agnews out there? Well, we're out here. Um, uh, four years ago, there were about 15 companies like mine in the United States. Now there's only three. Um, some of them have decided that the government regulations are so onerous that they're either going to build low-speed vehicles, which are not presently covered under the regulation. These are vehicles that go up to 24 miles an hour, generally useless <laughs> on American highways. Right. Or they're going to build uh, over 10,500-pound vehicles, like a UPS van or a, UPS, or a FedEx van, something bigger. They only have to meet the roof crush test. Anything in between has to go through a long and expensive multi-million dollar plan of crash testing, airbags, electronic stability control brakes, anti-flammability, all kinds of regulations that go into those businesses. In that respect, Vision Motor Cars is the only car company standing right now. What's the status of, of the company, by the way? Well, it's good. Uh, we just uh, took on a global partner. I'm not at liberty to say who that is yet. Uh, but this partner is uh, the most profitable car company in the world. They're more profitable than General Motors. They're far more profitable than Toyota. And uh, after two years of negotiation and technology exchange, mostly from us to them, uh, they're now willing to sign a partnership agreement with the, us. And I'm going over to that country next month to ink the deal. And Vision Motor Cars will be the largest builder of highway-ready electric trucks in the world. But congratulations. And we have to take our one and only intermission. But also, folks, I always try to give you some advice. I have a way, and I've said this before, that you can save 20 to 25% in gas consumption, especially now when the price of gas is, what, 4 to $5 in, in many states. So at the forum, I have once again re, uh, resuscitated the thread that shows you how to... How to uh, save 20 to 25 percent very inexpensively but books how do we get in touch with your work your books your dvds okay the the easiest way of course you can go to x squared radio all my links are kind of tied into that centrally but if you want to learn more about the electric vehicles go to mynewev.com it's real simple mynewev.com you can learn about all our vehicles you can sign a buyer interest form there's no obligation we just want to know who you are where you are, what your interests are If you want to learn about uh, Alienated Nation, just go to alienatednation.com. Again, this is not a government bash piece. This is a piece that gives a very simple, very doable, very legal and nonviolent solution. It only takes 40 people to make this happen. 40 people, and we can save our republic. And we have so much more to discuss when we come back. We have so much. We have questions from people around the world. And as always, Brooks always gives us some solutions. I don't want to talk about problems. The book is not only determining and identifying the problems, but as an engineer, he also offers the solutions that we need. When we come back, this is Mel Fabregas, and we're here with Dr. Brooks Agnew. You're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the members section. Enjoy.
This is Sherry Kane, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.